Beloved, isn't there great comfort in that truth? That he will hold us fast. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come before you and Lord, saved by grace. We were reminded that it's the same grace that saved us that will get us all the way through, that he who began the good work is faithful to complete it. Father, thank you for the great comfort that we have in that this morning. Father, we ask as we open up your word and study your word that your Holy Spirit would teach us. Father, you would open our eyes to truth, that you would open our hearts to receive it, that you would bend our wills to conform to it. We pray that you'd be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you came in at the 10 a.m. hour and were in your seats, you know the opening reading this morning that our brother Chris took us through Matthew chapter 7. And if you were listening and, and, and all the other distractions that we walked in here with were, were set aside, it was quite grievous to hear what Jesus spoke. And in Matthew 7, there would be many on that day that will stand before our Lord and they will stand absolutely deceived. They will stand before our Lord and they will stand in confidence and they will address him as Lord, Lord. And their confidence will be based on look at what we have done. Look at the works that we have accomplished. Here is what is scary as we think about that. They address him as Lord, Master. And yet Jesus' response to them is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want you to sit and think about that for a moment. They are so confident standing before Jesus that they would even boast in their own works. And yet Jesus' approval or disapproval was not based upon their works. It was based upon whether he knew them. Do I have your attention this morning? Because this is life and death. This is not just a time to come together and hold hands and sing kumbaya. It is a time to know the living God and to have assurance that we know him. Not assurance in our works, because our greatest works are like filthy rags to him. It is that he knows us, that we are one of his own, that we are called children of God. Because if Christ doesn't know us in that way, we have nothing. Jesus would put it this way, it's like a branch being apart from a vine that cannot bear fruit. And us being apart from Christ, we can do nothing. This morning, we're going to continue our study in the letter of 1 John this morning in a sermon called In the Light. In the Light. Now, if I have you on your heels this morning and you're in defensive mode this morning as we get started... Remember, the main point of John penning this letter is for the assurance of salvation. That we wouldn't have to guess and feel like, well, I hope I'll be okay on Judgment Day. Uh, I, I hope that Jesus will accept me on that day. But that we would know that we have eternal life. If you would, and you have your Bible this morning or your device, if you would turn to 1 John chapter 1 this morning. And when you get to 1 John chapter 1, if you'd rise to your feet to honor the public reading of God's word. 
John chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 5 through 10 this morning. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So it reads God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Please be seated. As you're in 1 John, I want to remind you by looking at the words that John penned in chapter 5. Hold your place there in chapter 1. Flip over again to chapter 5, as we did last week. And I want you to see his overall purpose. I stated it earlier. In 1 John chapter 5, in verse 13, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John desires that every genuine believer has assurance of their salvation. Think about it. Think about being in the presence of Jesus when he taught, there will be many who are deceived. There will be many who say, Lord, Lord, and try to justify their salvation upon works. John says, I want you to know. I want you to be assured that you have salvation. I don't want you to be guessing, and I don't want you to be deceived. I want you to know that you have salvation in Christ. And throughout this letter, he continues to build this argument by various litmus tests. And he goes rounds through these tests, a doctrinal test, a moral test, a love test. And over and over again, he addresses those so that we can test our faith in light of those and see the genuineness of our faith. So last week, just beginning in the prologue, that we must have a proper view of who Jesus is, that we must know the Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus that we formed and fashioned in our own minds. You know, when you hear those people who say, me and the big guy upstairs are okay, that's a different Jesus. Because the Jesus of the Bible is a holy God, one that we revere. And so this morning, as we look to our text, we will see in the opening verse, in verse 5, that John pants a foundational statement about God, that he is light. And then looking at your Bibles in 1 John chapter 1, I want you to see this. He goes through five conditional clauses following that. Look at verse 6. He starts with, if we say, and then he says something after that. Verse 7, he says, if we walk, and then he says something after that. Verse 8, if we say. Verse 9, if we confess. Verse 10, if we say. Now, keep looking at your Bibles. Don't look at me. You know what I look like. Keep looking down, and I want you to see something in your Bibles. From 6 through 10, he goes through these conditional clauses. He starts with one that is negative. If we say has a negative conclusion. Then he goes to one that says, if we walk, it has a positive ending. Then it's negative, then positive, then negative. He goes back and forth. And I like you looking at your Bibles to test to see if these things are so. Negative, positive, negative, positive, negative. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, I do want to point this out before we get too deep into this, that every time he says, if we say, guess what? He's speaking of error. He's speaking about those who would confess something, but there would be an empty profession. There is no truth in it, that there is falsehood. 
But the two times he says, if we walk or if we confess, there is truth there. Important to see his writing style of what he's using here to argue this. This morning, I'm going to break it apart a little bit. We'll go through three different points this morning. First thing we'll look at is knowing the light. We'll see that in verse 5 this morning. Secondly, we'll see walking in the light. That'll be verses 6 and 7. And then lastly, we'll look at growing in the light, verses 8 through 10. So John begins here with this statement about God. It's about knowing the light. So look with me in your Bibles at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John, being a great writer, again, utilizes contrast here to help us. And he uses light and darkness. Darkness, for those of you who like looking into what is darkness, it's the absence of light, just as cold as the absence of heat. But light and darkness are often used metaphorically in the scripture. Intellectually speaking, light is a metaphor for truth. To walk in the light is to walk in truth. Darkness would represent error or ignorance. John writes that God is light, means that he is truth, and in him is no error, that he is absolute truth. Morally speaking, light is a metaphor for righteousness and for goodness, whereas darkness represent evil and sin. Many of you have figured this out as you read through your Bible and you see these uses of darkness and you see the uses of light, that both intellectually and morally they represent things. But God is entirely righteous. He's entirely good. And in him is no evil, is no sin. And so John starts right after the prologue with a statement about God. And he's saying, be clear. God is completely, absolutely, unequivocally holy. That's who God is. God is holy and God is truth. He has no blemish of sin. He has no stain of iniquity. He has absolutely no trace of evil of any kind. He is perfectly holy. Beloved, this is our God. And it's this foundational piece that John begins with. We read in 1 Timothy 6.16 that, that God dwells in unapproachable light, in absolute perfection and holiness. God's self-revelation to us through the scripture is described in terms of light. Some various passages and verses that we are familiar with in Psalm 109 Excuse me, Psalm 119, verse 105. Psalm 119, 105, we read, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word. Psalm 119, 105. Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Speaking of God's word, illuminating truth. We read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Right here. That the light of God would shine. That God would reveal himself. Light, truth. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, that it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, and that he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Are you a believer here this morning? Because God has shown his light upon you. He has illuminated the truth of his son to you. God is light. He is absolute truth. 
He's entirely righteous and perfectly holy. That is foundational to everything else in life. It's knowing this God. Have you ever shared about the Lord to others? And you ask them a question about God and they tell you some description that is some made-up imaginative God. The God of the Bible is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. John starts with this announcement, God is light. And he's going to put all the clauses before that that are gonna reflect that God is light. He's the one that we put all this to when we point to as we test all truth, that he is truth. And so John is now gonna go into these five clauses beginning in verse six titled this section, Walking in the Light, we will spend more time here as we see as God is light. What does that mean for those who say they have fellowship with the light? Looking at your Bibles in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, John writes, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he starts in verse 5, knowing the light. God is light. And now he goes into very quickly, he says, if we say, if we proclaim, if we profess that we have fellowship with him. What does that mean? It means that we're saying that we know him, that we have union with God. What does that look like? Well, what does genuine fellowship with God look like? Or how is it even established? How do we get to have genuine fellowship with God? Because we can get this wrong this morning. We can say, well, there's this thing about walking and its works and everything else. But fellowship is established by God through the finished work of his son. And we have to get that part right this morning. It's what our Lord Christ has done through the cross that establishes fellowship for his people. Are you okay with that? I sure hope so because that's gospel truth. That's what the Bible says. But we have to get that right because as we go forward, we're going to see something about our response and our action and how we would walk. And we could end up like those Jesus spoke about, saying they were surely confident and saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You worker of lawlessness. And so we have to get this right. That Fellowship with God is a gift of God. It comes through a gift of repentance and faith. And it's all based upon Christ's atoning work on the cross. That's how we get true fellowship with God. It is entirely based upon grace. It is not of our own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. I'm going to keep hounding that this morning because we can't get this backwards. We can't go to where, okay, what must I do to be saved? What's the action? We must go back to seeing what Christ has done so we could be saved. And then what is the fruit that comes out of that? What is the evidence that comes out of that? But I have failed to communicate to you this morning if you walk out of here and think, what works must I do to be saved? Christ said, it is finished. We have been commanded to repent and believe in the gospel. That's how we have fellowship with God. It's only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. 
and share perfect fellowship with him and with his people. But here's the thing, as, as John unpacks this, sinners are not only forgiven of sin, but they are also freed from the bondage of sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Forgiven of sin and freed from the power of sin. There's a freedom from sin that comes through the gospel. It has been said that the gospel saves us and the gospel also changes us. We're not the same as we were before Christ. That the work of God's grace comes into us and teaches us to renounce all ungodliness. To, to seek after Christ. That he gives us a new heart that hungers and thirsts for him. And to be pleasing in his sight. The gospel, as using John's words of contrast, the gospel takes us from darkness and makes us light. That is the work of the gospel. Some of you might recall when Paul was saying about how Jesus called him to go and to preach to the Gentiles the gospel. In Acts 26, 18, Paul explains it this way. He says that it was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So what does that mean? It means that those who are in darkness are in a much worse place than they thought they were. Many people think it's not that bad. Things will be okay. Everything will pan out in the end. But the Bible says not only are you in darkness, but defining that darkness means you're under the power of Satan. Now, that seems a little stronger to me. That, if I had hair, would make my hair stand up a little more. The power of Satan? That I'm an enemy of God? Well, it means things aren't going to pan out okay. That I need to be rescued. And that rescuing comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would then read for those who are believers in 1 Peter 2.9. We would read to believers, those who have trusted in Christ. Those who have turned to him by God's grace. We would read in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's a contrast. There is a change that happens for those who are saved. That they were darkness, but now they are light in the Lord. Paul would say it very succinctly in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. There's change. What am I getting at? If you're here this morning and you profess Christ as Lord and Savior, look, there has been something that has taken off in our, our, our culture over the last 50, 60 years where coming to Christ was as simple as just raising your hand. It was as simple as just repeating a prayer and now you are forever saved because you raised a hand or you walked forward or you recited a prayer. Salvation is based upon the grace of God who would open our eyes to the truth of God and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is based upon a work that he does called regeneration. It is a miracle of God that he would transform us. God's miracle of regeneration what does that mean? What does it mean to experience the miracle of regeneration? It means being transformed from darkness and being made light. And in that transformation, we now have fellowship with God who is light. Let's continue what John wrote in verse 6. 
He said, if we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Are you picking up the contradiction here of what he is arguing here? To have fellowship with God is to be in the light because God is light. You cannot be in the light and walk in darkness at the same time. Those are mutually exclusive. You can't claim to have righteousness and truth while living in sin and error. Yet as John writes this, there are those who are creeping into the church with false teaching. And if you were here last week, we spoke of that a little bit, but it was what became known as Gnosticism, that all physical matter was evil, including the body itself, but the spirit was good. And because of that, they would say, since physical matter is evil, then what we do in our body doesn't really matter, that there is no sin because this is all evil anyway. And so this is what John is writing against. That, well, we, we could do as we please, live how we want, because after all, this body is evil. And so what I do in it isn't necessarily sin. You know, this reminds me of what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 5.20, we read, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, just because you say something doesn't make it truth. Just because they came into the church and trying to stir this false teaching does not make it truth. John is writing to refute this, saying, no, God is light. And he's saying, since he is light, if we walk in him, we also walk in the light. That we are not walking in darkness. So if we say that we have salvation in Christ, yet walk in darkness, John writes here, you lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, your actions aren't supporting your claims. You're saying one thing, but doing something entirely different. I mean, if I came up here this morning with a nice big pink box, and as I was preaching this morning, I was eating one donut after another. And then I told you, you know what? I began this really strict diet. <laughs> what you observe me doing... <laughs> And hearing me say would contradict one another. You would say, that doesn't make sense. Now, please don't write me an email later telling me you know of a donut diet. I don't, it's just an example. But the point is, we can say one thing, but our actions show it. And so if we say we're in the light, then we're to walk in the light and not in the darkness. To say one thing and to do another, to quickly disassociate the two, is to be in error. It's to be in sin. John writes so that we would have assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation, one mark of that is that my life has gone from darkness to light. That those who are in Christ Jesus are now in the light. Not my words, Jesus' words. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus defines it. Those who are his, they're the ones who have fellowship with him. They're the ones walking in the light. Not because they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and somehow they're working really hard in the flesh. It's because the grace of God is evident in their life by a life that's lived out in truth and a life that's lived out in obedience. 
Jesus would speak to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, and say, you are the light of the world. And two verses later, he would say in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to walk in the light? It means to live out righteousness. It means to live out truth. It means to be an imitator of God. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote often about this contrast between dark and light and, and the transformation that happens in a believer's life. I'm happy you flip there with me. If you'd hold your spot in 1 John, flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 8, I'll read through 14. Paul writes this, writing to the believers, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What is... Paul's saying here, he's saying, you've been taken from darkness to light, and now the encouragement is, walk like it, live like it, don't go back to the former manner that you used to live, but now live in the light, live out in Christ. He says, don't take part of those unfruitful works of darkness anymore, don't be partakers of that any longer but to live in the light. Flip over to Romans. I'm going to give you a few passages here. Same idea. Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Starting in verse 11. And I'll read through 14. Romans 13 beginning in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What, what Paul continues to instruct to believers is that the life that is now in the light, that, that God's children who now have fellowship with him in the light are to walk completely different than they did before. That their lives have been transformed. That there's now newness of life. We read at the end of that Romans passage, we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not say put on your own power and your own strength and your own might. It doesn't say try to do this wholeheartedly in your flesh. It says turn to Christ. He is your strength. And he is your light. One more passage to look at this morning regarding this. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We read in verses 4 through 8, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 4. Paul writes, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep... Sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope 
of salvation. How are we to walk? Properly as in the day, but based upon the truths of the gospel. That the gospel itself is my strength. The gospel itself is my assurance. The breastplate of faith and love. The hope of salvation. That I am not who I used to be, but I am now a child of God. That my identity is no longer who I was, but it's now as a child of God. As one who is in the light. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. Spurgeon said this, he said, quote, Christian life feeds upon contemplation, but it displays itself in action. A man may think he has much light, but if it is only notional and doctrinal and is not the light that enlightens his nature and develops himself in his spiritual walk, he lies when he talks of being in the light, for he is in darkness altogether. End quote. What is Spurgeon saying there? Saying the same thing, that if we say one thing, but our actions are different, we don't know the truth. Here's the scary thing. We come together and we want to get doctrine right. We want to understand the Bible rightly as we should, to be Bereans of the word. But if we can get everything right here, but there's nothing displayed in the way that we act, that we're not walking in the light, that we're not demonstrating love, that there is no fruit of the Spirit, all of that was for nothing. You follow me? So I know many of us love theology, and we should. The study of God should be what we invest in. But for what? What is the end of that? Is it just that we would know more, that we would have greater knowledge? Or is it so we might enjoy him and glorify him forever? That fruit comes in our response to the truth. So in verse 6, he states the false teaching, the error of it. He goes on in verse 7, if you would turn back to 1 John with me. John continues in verse 7 and gives us a correct teaching. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus has his son cleanses us from all sin. So here he gives the correct teaching. He's saying, look, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God and one another. That is one of the assurances we have of salvation is that we're walking in the light, which means genuine fellowship is an indication of genuine conversion. We could say genuine conversion is an indication of genuine regeneration. Or we could also say genuine regeneration is an indication of genuine salvation. It's an assurance that we know that we have salvation in him. John summarizes this truth by saying this, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Those who are Christ have the stain of sin completely removed by the blood of Christ. Though our sins are many, Christ's blood fully cleanses us. I want you to stop and check back in in case I lost you somewhere. Though our sins are many, Christ's blood fully cleanses the believer. So we must get this right of what John is arguing here. We have to be careful to understand it because he is not saying that if we act in a certain way, then we will be cleansed from all sin. He is not arguing for a works-based salvation. Rather, he is saying that every believer who walks in truth and righteousness, listen, they will still sin. But that sin is covered in the blood of Christ. Say, so wait, wait, walk in the light. How, how do you still sin? Let me explain. And if you've been a believer for any length of time, you realize this happens. That you know the truth about Christ and you know you have fellowship with him. And yet, you know there is still sin to be dealt with. 
To walk in the light simply means to walk in the newness of life. It means to put off the old self and to walk in the new self. I think Paul summarizes the best in Colossians 3. If you're a note taker, just put Colossians 3, 1 through 10. You can read it for homework later. But Colossians 3, 1 through 10 talks about the life of the believer, that they're now to seek things that are above, not things that are on earth. And they're to put on the new self and put off the former self. There's an action that comes out of genuine salvation. And I believe this is what John is arguing here in his letter. That though there is this pursuit and there's this trajectory that I am seeking after Christ and I'm living to bring him glory, that sin still dwells in my flesh. Look at verse 7 again, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Why do we need continual cleansing from sin if we're now in the light? Because of indwelling sin that is in us, that we still have this fallen flesh. And the two, the flesh and the spirit, now have dueling desires within us. One desires to please God and the other desires to please self. Paul would put it this way in Galatians 5, 17. He would say, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you are a believer here this morning, and you blow it, you get frustrated, and you say something that's unloving, unkind, something rude, there should be a correction of the Holy Spirit who's your helper. And you know that you've blown it. My friend, that is a glorious thing, that we have a helper, the Holy Spirit, who was sent to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so what does that look like in this argument that that John is making here? He's saying this, that on this side of heaven, we will not be sinless. Though those who have been transformed from darkness and made light surely do sin less because they're not in bondage to sin, but they still sin. You know, there are days that we would even judge our own spirituality. We'd say, I had a good day spiritually, or I had a bad day spiritually. Even on what we would consider our best day spiritually, it is marred by sin. Marred by sin. But as believers, those who, by God's grace, have repented and trusted in the work of Christ, the spilt blood of Christ continues to wash away the stains of our sins. Consider that. That though we go and we walk in light to live in truth and righteousness and to bear much fruit, we will still sin. And yet the, the trajectory of our lives is no longer like it was. It's now one of growing in holiness. But we still sin. Do you know there's a direct correlation in Scripture between belief and obedience? John would write in his gospel in John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What's he saying? He's saying there should be transformation in the life of the believer. And I want you to, as you use this test for the genuineness of salvation, I want you to understand that though we're to be perfect as he is perfect, though we're to be holy as he is holy, because of our fallen flesh, there is still sin. Are you following me? But we are no longer in bondage to that sin. We're no longer habitually living in that sin. We have been forgiven and freed from that sin. This is a work of God, salvation. It's not a work of the flesh. 
It's God who works in us to both will and to work for his good pleasure. It's him who draws us into the light. It's him who makes us light. And it's him who strengthens us to walk in the light. Church, the argument that John first makes here is, don't fall for that we can say this and not worry about what it looks like. He said, if you're claiming one thing, there should be evidence of that. But the caution I have for you this morning is don't do it backwards. Don't think if I just work real hard in the flesh and, and do all these things that I think would somehow impress God and, and merit salvation, that somehow I will then be saved because we already heard Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you workers of lawlessness. We must trust in the finished work of the cross. Lastly, this morning, growing in light, the last arguments that John makes in this third point, starting in verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Again, because of the false teachers of the day claiming that the body was evil, so what was done in the body is not considered sin. John's going to refute that. Going to refute it that this is a convenient teaching, but it's also a damning one. The reality is that every believer continues to fight against temptation and sin. And we will continue by the grace of God in that fight on this side of heaven. But there's constant temptation. But what is the argument here? The argument is this, that when it comes to sin, we should never justify, never minimize, never excuse, or never ignore sin. This is what Jesus came to die for, to pay the penalty for. It's never to be ignored. Here's the warning. If you are here this morning and you profess to know Christ and you think you have no sin... Bible would say that your heart has been hardened to the things of God. To think that you have no sin. Yet you can see sin in others and you can point the finger at them. I'm looking out and I see a bunch of married couples. You could see your spouse's sin. You could write a dissertation on their sin. But if you can't see your own sin, you're not walking in the light. We all have sin. If we claim to know Christ and yet do not see our own sin, John records here that we are deceived and the truth is not in us. But for every believer who walks in the light, their sin is continually exposed to them. You know, if you've been a believer for any length of time and you know that you are now in the light and you're walking in a manner trying to be pleasing to the Lord, you realize just how much of a sinner you are. Every day you walk with the Lord, you realize why Christ needed to come and save that which was lost. Why he came to save sinners like us. Because there is sin and there is much sin. And the longer we walk with him, the more we realize, I am a sinner. Oh, wretch that I am. Sinner saved by grace. One commentator put it this way, quote, God's holiness, he is light, shows our unholiness. We are stained black with sin. And thus the need of an incarnate and crucified Christ to wash us in his holy blood, end quote. You know, the more time you spend in the light of Christ, the more sensitive you become to sin. We see this in the Apostle Paul's life. When he began his ministry, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 59 that he is the least of the apostles. And he continues to walk with Christ and grow in Christ. In Ephesians, later on, he writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I am the very least of all the saints. So he went from being the least of the apostles, the exclusive group. 
Then he went to be the least of all the believers. And then towards the end of his life in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. As we walk in the light, we will grow in humility. We will grow in our understanding that we are sinners in need of a Savior. That we are needy recipients of the grace of God. And so rather than saying that we are without sin, John argues in this letter that we are to confess sin. That surely sin does dwell in this flesh. Look with me at verse 9. John says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a verse that many of us often quote? Even as we go into prayer before our Lord, we would quote this as a promise, as truth. What does it mean to confess? What is being asked here that if we confess our sins, it's humbling ourselves before God and agreeing with him about specific things sins. It is not this. It's not going before the Lord and saying, Lord, if I have sinned against you, please forgive me. By the way, that doesn't work relationally between us either. When you hurt somebody, you can't say, if I've hurt you. Confession is being very specific about Sin. It is seeing the sin as God sees it. The word confess means to say the same. It means to agree that God sees this as sin, and I agree I have sinned, that I have done that. And so in your confession, are you saying the same thing about sin, about specific thoughts, about specific words, about actions? Are you saying it the same as God does, that it is sin? Because in our modern vernacular, we have minimized sin. We even say things like this. It was just a white lie. And we take all forms of sin and we make it so much more appealing and not hurtful. We rename it. But instead, we're to call sin what it is. And we know that in response to that sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise of Jeremiah 31, 34 being fulfilled, where God said and promised, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's what it is. As we confess, God is faithful. He will do what he has promised. And he is also just because on the cross, the blood of Jesus was shed as he gave himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We have a faithful and just God. And what are the amazing results for us? He will forgive us of our sins and he'll remove the stain of all our sins. Meaning there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I know we're pretty reserved in our reactions, but that should be a hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. To confess our sins to him and to rest in his faithfulness, to rest in his justice, to enjoy forgiveness and the cleansing like David did. David wrote in Psalm 32, David wrote this, he said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man who, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Growing in holiness is acknowledging sin. Growing in holiness and growing in the light is confessing sin. Beloved, is that a regular part of your time with God? Confession of sin. Or does it just go, and we ignore it? Because as we grow in the light, and as we confess our sin, 
That there is forgiveness and there's the stain removed entirely, but there's also a time where we enjoy him, that we understand the grace of God, that we understand the sacrifice of our Lord. So John ends his argument in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, if we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What does that mean we make him a liar? God's word clearly says that we are all sinners, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is why Jesus came to save sinners. If you say you have not sinned, you're saying that God is a liar by what he said. If you think you have no sin, if you're here this morning, perhaps you walked in or invited in and you sit here and go, I'm pretty good. I don't have sin. Then you don't see any need for a savior. And you think somehow you're going to save yourself. And somehow on that day, you're going to see Christ and give an account for everything and Somehow you're going to even address him as Lord and say, but look at all that I've done. And he's going to say to you, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. We must know who God is. He is a God of light. We must know that for those who have genuine salvation in the blood of Christ, that there is transformation that the gospel that saved them is the gospel that's changed them. That they're no longer in darkness, but they're now in the light. You must know that if you're here this morning, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are becoming more and more sensitive to sin. And as you see that sin, you are quick to turn and to confess that sin and to enjoy the forgiveness of sin and the freedom from sin. I want to end with this quote. I'm going to quote Spurgeon one more time. Spurgeon said, quote, The moment a sinner trusts Jesus, that sinner is as fully forgiven as he will be when the light of the glory of God shall shine upon his resurrection countenance. Forgiveness of sin is a present thing, a privilege for this day, a joy for this very hour. Whoever walks in the light as God is in the light has fellowship with God and at and has at this moment the perfect pardon of sin. Are you in the light? Do you know the one who claimed that he is the way and the truth and the life? The one who said that no one comes to the Father except through him. It is this, Jesus, who is the one who has lived perfectly a life that we could not live, and who has died as a perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for all of our sin. And the Bible commands us now to repent and to believe in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for using men like John to be carried by your spirit to pen your message for us. And Father, as we have heard this morning, have declared clearly that you are a God who is light, a God of perfection, a God of truth, a God of righteousness, a God of holiness. Father, as you reconcile man and woman and child unto yourself that you give them your own light that they go from darkness and they become light and we are reminded this morning that now for those of us who have become children of yours that we are to walk in the light that the same profession of us being a Christian should be seen by your grace working through us to live out walking in light, living in righteousness and truth. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning that, Father, you would know that they currently right now are completely deceived, that they think they are okay, that they think that if they were to breathe their last, that they would be welcomed into your presence. 
Father, they have not acknowledged their own sin. They don't see their own sin and they don't need, see a need for a savior. Father, I pray that your spirit would reveal to them that they are deceived and they are a sinner in need of a savior. And Christ Jesus is that savior. Father, for the rest of us who you have done that work by your grace in our lives of drawing us to Christ and giving us the gift of repentance and faith, Father, would you, by your grace, continue to help us to grow in the light, to continue to run to you in time of confession, that we would know the heart of your son, Jesus, and come to him when we are tempted and when we sin, that we would receive forgiveness and cleansing of our sin. Father, we pray that you would do this for your great namesake, that you would be glorified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.